You're listening to Plenary Session. Today's episode will be a bonus episode of Plenary Session. On October 11th, 2018, I was uh, given the great pleasure of giving grand rounds to the OHSU Hospitals Department. Some people were unable to attend the lecture, and so I recorded it. This recording hopes to do two things. One, to make the lecture available to those who did not attend who are interested, and two, to make the lecture available to the plenary session audience. This lecture was on medical reversal and was entitled Medical Reversal, Why 40% of What We Do Is Wrong. And I hope to explain the provocative title throughout the course of the lecture. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. Before we recorded this introduction, one paper that had been issued, I believe, as a preprint a while back and has now come out in the literature in the journal Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Sciences by Brian Nozick and colleagues is entitled Many Analysts, One Dataset, Making Transparent How Variations in Analytic Choice Affect Results. Here's the crux of the paper. They took the same data set which involved whether or not soccer referees were more likely to give red cards to dark skin tone players than to light skin tone players. And they gave this data set to 29 teams using 61 analysts. And they asked them to analyze this question, are they or are they not more likely to give red cards to dark skin players? 20 teams or 69% found a statistically significant positive relationship, i.e. they were, Nine teams did not observe a significant relationship, and in a couple of cases, the point estimate actually went a little bit the other way. And here's the next part. Overall, the 29 different analysts used 21 unique combinations of covariates. If you had peer reviewers evaluate the quality of the analysis, this could not account for the variability. Okay, what does this actually prove? Um, On Twitter, somebody pointed out to me that the confidence intervals largely were overlapping, and thus it's not like people were getting answers that were completely out of the ballpark from each other, and that is true. But I think that misses the real take-home point is that some people were giving qualitatively different answers. One group was saying, look, there is no evidence of bias. The other group was saying, yes, there is an evidence of bias, and this is the point estimate. Okay, that's a different fundamental take-home lesson. Is there a bias or is there not? This is a unique circumstance where everybody who was given the question and the data set, all of them were reporting their results, but that's not what happens in the real world. For hot questions and hot topics and questions for which there's publicly available data sets or data sets broadly available or EHR data sets or we can all come up with our own data set, many, many investigators may be probing the exact same questions using similar, perhaps not the same, but similar data sets with all sorts of different analytic approaches. You factor on that, the simple human fact that most of us who get results with hazard ratio 1.01, non-significant results, we probably won't feel compelled to write them up or submit them. If we do write them up and submit them, they may not be published timely. They may not be published in good journals. They may be published in lesser journals. And top it all off, 
all of us are probing this question with our own intrinsic views or biases on the topic. For instance, if we're doing studies on red meat, many of us may already believe that red meat is bad for you, at least in certain amounts. We may explore the question with that in mind. If we're doing paper on blueberry consumption, we may explore the idea that that must be good for you. Blueberries seem like they're good for you. So what does this all mean? If you think about what Brian Nozick has shown, which is that in this very controlled setting where the same data set is given to different groups and we're getting different qualitative conclusions, and you think more broadly about the research agenda for many, many questions that may be probed retrospectively in large-scale fashion with rampant field-wide multiplicity, which is what we have, you may reach the inevitable conclusion that the published literature, the published point estimates, may only be the tip of a very, very large iceberg. Most of that iceberg might be non-significant. Most of that iceberg might be uninteresting. But the tip of the iceberg might be provocative, might lead us to certain conclusions. This is why John Ioannidis has written that we need to register all of our observational protocols prior to analysis. We need to know the field of what is being probed. And until we do so, we should harbor the humility that retrospective observational research may be little more than a self-fulfilling prophecy and no more than an opinion bowl, which is something John said in one of his wonderful papers. I say this as an introduction because in this lecture, I will talk a little bit about the vibration of effects, a wonderful paper by Chirag Patel and John Unides about exploring different covariate combinations. I've talked about this before in my lectures. I like to talk about this point because I think this is a crucially important point. And I say this because this paper fits that idea. They're both in the same vein. And I think it's so easy to dismiss this paper and say, you know, these people don't know a lot about soccer. Um, they all had overlapping confidence intervals. It's mostly the same. It's not that bad. Um, but if you think about what might be going on in certain hot fields and hot topics, when you think about the rampant field-wide multiplicity, the lack of registration, and all of the biases that are present between a result coming up on Stata and publishing a paper in the peer review literature, it is not good. The situation is not good. And one of the things that randomized trials do is limit the rampant multiplicity, okay? Though it may not limit it quite as much as we would hope in certain cases, which is some work we're doing. All right, with that introduction, here it is, the lecture of medical reversal given to the OHSU hospitalist department. Well, thank you for coming. I notice everyone's over here, so I'm just gonna face this direction. I'm trying to record this, so we'll send the audio out for people who didn't make it. Um, but I'm gonna talk to you today about medical reversal. The title is provocatively chosen, why 40% of what we do is wrong. I hope to convince you of the sentiment, if not the exact number. I may not be able to convince you of the exact number. In terms of disclosure, I'm the author of this book, which is why I'm fabulously wealthy, as many of you know. Uh, and my work is funded by this nonprofit foundation. In the last two months, we've launched this podcast, which is on the iTunes Store and SoundCloud and some other places. And check it out. And your, yours truly, Renee De Diversal, is in episode, I think, four of the podcast. And that's a good one you should check out, talking about bedside ultrasound. And Avio Glasser's in episode three, I think, talking about medical Twitter. Um, but the real disclosure of this talk is that some of what I talk about is controversial. 
and it is not my purpose to disparage specific medical practices, uh, but I will do so. I'll do so to make a broader point, I hope. Um, the point I want to make is about broad patterns of medical progress, biomedical innovation, where evidence happens, how it's increasingly being hijacked by the industry, in my opinion, and some famous missteps in biomedicine. So this is the real disclosure. And usually when I give this lecture, there's um, specialists in the audience who tend to give me the most grief about one thing in particular, which you may, you may see. Okay, what, what do I mean by medical reversal? What is medical reversal? I think many of us in this room and many people think about biomedicine the way we think about our cell phones, the way we think about our televisions, the way we think about automobiles. So this is a picture of two Model T cars. The first Model T by Henry Ford and Elon Musk's Model T. When we think about technology, automobiles, I think we think of steady incremental progress over the last 100 years. No one will dispute that the car on the right is a better car than the car on the left. And just like your phone in your pocket can do more than a phone could 10 years ago, the televisions are thinner and clearer than they ever were. We think about our experience in technology and we extrapolate it to our experience in biomedicine. And we assume that it's been steady linear progress. And I want to suggest that that narrative is actually in part correct. There's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to it. And I picked a few examples up here that will kind of walk you through. One, how do we treat peptic ulcer disease? Um, it wasn't that long ago when the treatment was a barbaric surgery. Uh, then finally, in the 1980s and 90s, we pioneered histamine antagonists, H2 blockers, and then proton pump inhibitors, which is a better acid-suppressing medication. It doesn't have tachyphylaxis. You can take it indefinitely, and your pH is controlled indefinitely, in contrast with H2 blockers. So when it comes to the treatment of peptic ulcer disease, we've made incremental progress. I, I think many of us think a pill is a lot better than that ridiculous surgery we used to do all the time. What about Hodgkin's lymphoma? Um, if you read the books, it will tell you that as late as World War II, if you were diagnosed with Hodgkin's, it was universally fatal, and you would die within two years. Um, in the 1950s, Henry Kaplan at Stanford started to cure patients with radiotherapy, although he cured very few patients and delivered substantive toxicity, a lot of toxicity for few cures. In the 1960s, Vincent DeVita and colleagues at the National Cancer Institute pioneered MOMP and MOP chemotherapy, which brought cure rates into like 50, 60 percentage points. And finally, we pioneered ABVD, which is the standard of care used today. And we have cure rates, 80 to 90% cure rates for Hodgkin's disease. So steady incremental progress, what was once universally fatal, is now mostly cured. What about the treatment of ST elevation myocardial infarction? Um, it was even within the lifetime of Eugene Braunwald that the cause of ST elevation MI was not known. People didn't know it was an acute occlusion of the coronary artery. We prescribed bed rest, and we probably increased mortality from DVT and PE. We, didn't, we probably did a net harm. Finally, we realized it was an acute occlusion. We pioneered ways to reperfuse the artery, originally with streptokinase, the recombinant tissue plasminogen activator, Genentech drug, and then the use of POBA, percutaneous coronary angioplasty, the placement of a stent. I think when it comes to stenting for MI and all the things we do for acute MI, you're talking about one of the greatest success stories in all of biomedicine. Absolute risk reduction of 15%, 20% uh, maybe for an acute condition. Uh, it's a truly a remarkable story. And there's no doubt about it, PCI saves lives when used for STEMI. Okay, but there's a narrative I think we don't hear too often in medicine um, because as Churchill says, history is written by the victors. 
And people who write biomedical textbooks make it seem as if everything was an inexorable progression. What we do today was better than what we did yesterday because that's how history books are written. They don't tell you about all the missteps, the things we tried and failed and were abandoned and nobody wants to talk about in the textbook like DeVita or Harrison's. And I want to suggest there's another narrative that at many other times something we had been doing was found to be no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care, including doing nothing. These are the stories that don't make the textbooks. How we once, for shock patients, would routinely place a Swan-Gans catheter in the ICU to monitor shock, which will give you a wealth of hemodynamic information, but unfortunately, in randomized controlled trials like ESCAPE, could not be shown to improve outcomes. Um, we, not that long ago, routinely prescribed hormone therapy for postmenopausal women with the goal that it would lower the rate of cardiovascular events and improve perhaps longevity. Finally, in 2002, with the publication of WHI, we learned that it actually increased cardiovascular events, if anything, and now we know with long-term follow-up, there's no effect on mortality. Finally, PCI for stable angina. Um, so many medical conditions exist on a spectrum of severe disease states where intervention is of dramatic benefit and early or lesser disease states where intervention may have no net benefit or perhaps even net harm. And PCI is no different. Probably the majority of stents placed in this country are placed for chronic stable angina. There's a number of publications that would support that, but there's some dispute there. Um, Survey after survey of patients suggests that patients believe stenting chronic stable angina will lower the rate of MI and improve longevity. And in fact, we know since Courage, it does neither of those two things. What we thought it did until very recently was improve the symptoms of angina. And now we have the trial Orbita, which I'll talk about. So what is medical reversal? It's a lot more like this car. It's a Volkswagen diesel. You bought this car because you cared about the environment and you did not want to contribute to climate change. And in retrospect, it put out 30 times as much fossil or fossil or greenhouse gas emissions than a regular gas guzzling car, okay? I believe biomedicine is riddled with Volkswagen diesels. We have so many Volkswagen diesels, we don't even recognize or see them because we don't have the kind of investigative journalists that expose this fraud. Okay, so in the, I guess, 40 minutes or so we have remaining, I'm gonna talk about these topics. I'm gonna give you a couple examples of reversal to give you a flavor of what I mean. I'm gonna talk about how often it happens, why it's harmful, where it comes from, what we can do about it, and what are persistent objections I hear when I give this lecture. So some examples. I think everyone in this room knows that hypertension, atherosclerosis, and aging go hand in hand in hand. And we all have difficult to control patients with high blood pressure who take multiple antihypertensives and still have bad high blood pressure. And it is intuitive that if some of those patients have atherosclerotic buildup of the afferent renal artery as shown in the picture, that if you open that artery up, you might improve blood pressure. Why? Because when the kidney is strangled off of oxygen, it'll make renin, which will turn to AT1, AT2, and the RAS pathway, blah, blah, blah. We memorized once long ago. Um, so we had noticed that there are people with renal artery stenosis and bad hypertension and the interventionalists would quickly stent these open. But the question was, does that actually improve outcomes? That's, that the hypothesis is very plausible, but does it actually do it? And I will say that without definitive studies, this became a $1 billion a year industry from CMS reimbursement alone for at least a decade. So at least $10 billion, but probably include private payers, maybe 20, $30 billion has been spent on this procedure. And we still do it today. 
Okay, the stent, boom, opens up. Look how good that looks. It's, it's a huge, I can feel my blood pressure come down just looking at it. And in fact, now we have at least six randomized controlled trials testing intervention against medical therapy. These are the two largest, astral and coral. Absolutely no difference in time to renal event or time to cardiovascular event. And actually the difference in blood pressure medication between the two arms was trivial. There's not much of a difference. So when I give this lecture, I give it as a cautionary note that just because something is extremely bioplausible doesn't mean it actually does what you think it does. You should test it in rigorous large-scale trials. The cardiologist will say, well, these trials are not fair because they excluded patients with flash flood pulmonary edema. The worst of the worst patients were not put on the trial because people did not feel as if there were equipoise for that. And what I would say is I don't discount that. If someday a future study shows that in flash flood pulmonary hypertension and atherosclerotic disease, this is a benefit, I'll say, okay, good. But what I will say is, if something has been done for 20 years and you've made $30 billion off of it, at some point the onus is on you to prove in whom it works and not on the critic to show it does not work over and over again. You cannot prove some intervention will never work under any circumstances. You can only prove it works under some circumstances. The burden of proof must be on the person who believes in it. A few years ago, we had an outbreak of fungal meningitis in the Northeast due to aspergillus contamination of methylprednisolone. And I think last year, the CEO of that compounding pharmacy went to prison uh, because of a pattern of, I don't know, not being careful or whatever they were doing. But in the wake of that discussion, we talked a great deal about what can we do in compounding pharmacies to clean them up. What we didn't talk about so much was why are we injecting so many people in the back with corticosteroids? And the reason we're injecting so many people in the back with corticosteroids is we think it will improve the painful symptoms of conditions like spinal stenosis. But had that been studied? This is the sham controlled, randomized controlled trial in New England Journal of Medicine 2007. Patients with painful spinal stenosis randomized to saline plus lidocaine versus glucocorticoid plus lidocaine. Now lidocaine has a very short half-life. It'll wear off in a day or so. All of the improvement in pain at three weeks and six weeks must be driven by the glucocorticoid. Let me put that another way. If you got the glucocorticoid versus if you got saline, you should have a benefit at three weeks and six weeks because a glucocorticoid is a long-acting anti-inflammatory. The hypothesis here is if the methylprednisolone has value, these curves will be split apart at three weeks and six weeks with the glucocorticoid group in the lead. And in fact, what you see is there's no difference between these two curves at three weeks and six weeks. This suggests that the methylprednisolone is merely an expensive, costly, something that can be contaminated, placebo. It's a placebo. Now the question is, is the whole procedure a placebo? One could test that in another sham control study where you make a perhaps pinprick in the person's back, you simulate doing the procedure, but you don't actually do anything. You don't even put lidocaine. Or maybe you just put some lidocaine paste on the back of the skin, test that against lidocaine injection. But eventually we can probably test whether or not there's any value to doing this at all. And we know that there are some professions in medicine that it's almost the mainstay of practice is just doing this over and over again. And they're often very lucrative professions. Ah, my favorite trial. This is Rasha Lamy, Daryl Francis, Orbita, published from Imperial College London, Lancet, last year. Um, we knew a few things after the COURAGE trial. We knew that in COURAGE, if you look at quality of life scores, the group that got stented had improvements in anginal symptoms that were small and went away by about 36 months, but they were real improvements. It was in a subsequent paper. We also knew from history in the 1950s 
that we once pioneered a procedure called ligation of the internal mammary artery. You would just tie off someone's internal mammary artery. And actually, angina would get a whole lot better. People's anginal symptoms would feel wonderful. Now we know that, has, that artery has nothing to do with angina, okay? But people felt a lot better. And then late 1950s, Cobb did a sham controlled randomized trial of the ligation of the artery, and he found that the, the control group felt a lot better too. It was all a placebo effect. So we know angina is susceptible to the placebo effect. We know courage is not a sham controlled trial. It's open label, you know you got stented. And so in our book, we speculated that if you tested stenting against sham controlled stenting, there would be no subjective benefit. And that is exactly what they did. They randomized 200 patients to PCI or placebo PCI, where they made them think they did it, made them wear headphones, and told them they did it, but they didn't actually do it. And the primary endpoint of the study was exercise time, a modified Bruce protocol. And early studies show that if you get stented for angina versus medical therapy, improvement of exercise time is 90 seconds. If you have to use a drug like renolazine or crank up a beta blocker, you may get 45 second improvement exercise time. If you ask a cardiologist what's the minimum difference in exercise time that's clinically meaningful, they say 40, 45 seconds. And this trial is powered for a 30 second difference in exercise time. So it's overpowered, to, or it's powered to find a difference thought less than clinically significant. It failed to find that difference. The endpoint is negative. The difference between the two groups was in 16 seconds, non-significant p-value. So proponents say this is an underpowered trial. But Daryl Francis points out that if you believe this is underpowered and you cannot articulate what you want to power it for, the only thing underpowered is your brain. And that's what he said on Twitter. And then, strangely, he got very quiet after that because I haven't seen him say much lately. But I thought it was true because people can criticize this trial, but they don't understand. The power calculation is already overpowered to find the difference that matters. And then here are pictures of the stenotic lesions and they're real stenosis. And the other point I want to make is people say, oh, this is just single vessel disease. And they say, oh, so what about multivessel? Maybe it works there. But I actually think that scientifically it's so elegant. If you have angina and single vessel disease, there's only one place you could stent to feel better or not. If you had two vessel disease, you stented one of them, people say, oh, you didn't stent enough. You didn't stent the right spot. Here it's very scientifically elegant. I have actually said this is the best paper of the last decade. Um, it, they've written articles about how difficult it was to fund. And I think it'll be the most cited paper of the, la of the next 10 years. It'll, be, it'll get more citations than any other paper. It's truly practice changing. So I give them a lot of props. And they're under tremendous heat. They're just getting destroyed by people who are angry with them for showing this. How often does this happen? So I think stenting for PCI has really been put on its head. No MI benefit, no mortality benefit, and a symptom benefit that even if that's a real 16 seconds, is it worth it to put in $20,000 of hardware, this procedure that has real harms and complications for that tiny benefit that probably will vanish by, you know, if you did long-term follow-up, I bet it wouldn't last that long, just like we saw in Courage. So we've tried a couple ways to estimate how often this happens. This was our paper in 2013 we published, and we're working on the sequel, which is almost done. And I'll just walk you through it. I will say um, right off the bat, there is no perfect way to document how often reversal happens. So this is an approximation. So to approximate how often this phenomenon happens, we read in duplicate every article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in a decade as an original article, 2,000 articles were read by two people. And that's why God invented medical students, to do the kind of hard-hitting research. But I, I joke, but I also make the point that even if they never publish this paper, 
Um, and these are the people, who, oh, students and residents who did it. Even if they never published the paper, there's no better research project to do as a student because you basically just read the absolute best articles in all of medicine and now you're like a really good doctor. So that's your consolation prize. <laughs> of these 2,000 articles, 1,300 concern a medical practice. A third are something biological, like um, you know, this novel mutation predicts some you know, Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia, Mighty 88 Waldenstrom, something you'd read in Nature, Cell, or Science. But two-thirds are what we do, wear contact gown and gloves, have a rapid response team, prescribe ibrutinib for CLL, prescribe rivaroxaban over Coumadin. These are things we're doing day in and day out. Here's the first thing we found. 73% are something novel, new anticoagulant, new antiplatelet, new whatever, you know, new cancer drug. If you test something novel, and if you were in the New England Journal of Medicine in this decade, 2001 to 2010, I can tell you what you found. 77% of the time, you found the novel thing was better. And only 17% of the time did you go back to the drawing board. When people talk about publication bias, this is what they mean. New England Journal of Medicine, they don't care about your failed anticoagulant that's never going to be marketed and is never going to have a citation trail. They want the paper that will be cited forever as practice changing. And everyone's review articles till time ends. And that's why they publish these papers and not this paper. And we actually know from other data, randomized trials are not positive 77% of the time. We all know that. A quarter of medical practices tested something established. That's what we cared about. Um, we knew from prior work that if you look at everything doctors do, about half of it there's no credible data one way or the other. There's absolutely no randomized data. They're the decisions that fall in the backdrop of your day. You forget you're even making them. I do too. Um, if you subjected those to rigorous appraisal, what would happen? That's what we think is this represents. These are the established practices we're doing. Mostly have never been subjected to any rigorous appraisal, with rare exception. 38% validate what we're doing. You should have gotten that annual flu shot. 40% find it's no better or worse. You should probably not have taken hormonal replacement therapy you know, for year after year postmenopausally. So here I think there's less of a selection bias because the mere testing of standard of care is provocative and will be cited. And what our results suggest is there may be a 50-50 split or 40-40 and then the summary inconclusive, the mixed endpoints kind of thing. Now we're doing this in a broader way. We're looking at 15 years, three journals, 15,000 articles. We have a team of four people. We're grant funded. The only purpose of the grant funding is to do this project. We've been doing it for a year. We've sunk like 8,000 person hours into it. Hopefully we have the paper out soon, but it's, it's quite, quite a burden, quite a burden to do. But hopefully it'll be very interesting because we'll have a list of practices that really don't work. Um, in the book that I've written and in this paper, we actually list every one of the medical practices that we thought would have worked but didn't work. This is what doesn't enter Harrison's. This is the history of medicine that no one will ever teach. And we've only captured it for one slice of medicine, one period of time. And I urge people who are interested in medicine, just read the supplement. Read these 146 practices. Uh, it won't take you too long. It's only 10 pages. But why is it so instructive to read? You read some of these things and it makes total sense like why that should have worked. And the best people at the best centers had the best data to suggest that these should have worked. But they didn't do confirmatory studies. And when they did, it didn't go the way they thought. So I think it gives us a lot of humility. And it makes us think about our own practices and all the things that I take for granted um, that probably don't really work. I just feel very strongly that they do. And it allows me to temper the way in which I communicate that to patients at a minimum and perhaps more, it allows me to put pressure on others to do the definitive studies. 
So, reversals include. I always put this slide up just to make the point that there is nothing about what we do that is sacrosanct. Pills, procedures, devices, surgery, screening tests, I'm thinking of PSA, over-the-counter medications, vitamins, supplements, treatment algorithms. What do I mean by that? Once for patients post-MI who got stented, we would do platelet reactivity assays. And if the platelets were sub-maximally inhibited with Plavix, we'd switch them to Prasagrel. We'd crank up the ADP receptor antagonism if they were not inhibited. Because we had data that said, if you weren't inhibited, you're more likely to have an event, which makes sense, because your platelet will react. And what we found was, you can randomize thousands of patients to testing or not testing for platelet reactivity. You will make more changes, but you will not improve outcomes. Just like we saw recently, high sensitivity troponin in the Lancet. You can randomize Scottish hospitals to having high sensitivity troponin or not. You will diagnose more MIs. You will make that diagnosis more. One year later, you will not improve any outcome. So merely because an algorithm or treatment algorithm like that is plausible, doesn't mean you can leverage improved outcomes. And that's what Go and I have written about in the BMJ last month. We wrote that perhaps for some conditions like MI, stroke, and metastasis, the category of the diagnosis gets broader and broader as your CAT scans get clearer and clearer and you're finding these little ditzels and you're calling it metastatic cancer, that you may reduce metastasis but no longer improve survival because there's a disconnect between the overdiagnosed endpoint and the endpoint you actually care about. So that's a paper that Go wrote in the British Medical Journal. Harms. I think there are three main categories of harms for reversal. One, everyone who underwent the procedure during the years it fell in favor were harmed. They very likely were misled, like with PCI. People believe consistently that it will lower the rate of MI. That is factually not true. And so if they believe that, and that's why they're consenting to the procedure, I think we have a, an ethics concern going on. And they've done some, a lot of studies about patient perceptions and cardiology counseling, and you can look into that. But I think it's fair to say it is probably not as good as you would like. Um, medicine is like a battleship. It doesn't turn on a dime. We get this negative information. We don't switch our course immediately. We take often years and years and years. I'm going to skip the data, but maybe like seven to 10 years to change our practice. And people continue to be harmed during the years before people let it go. I think this is the inertia that I talk about, and I think that's a big harm. The one thing I'd say is that um, even though I do a lot of work on financial conflict, I think most of what we do, we actually do because we truly believe it helps our patients. I mean, even those of us who are conflicted, I think it's a little bit of our influence, but most of what we do is what we believe in. But you take somebody and you train them to put stents in and you make them believe in it because they believe in it to do it. And every patient comes back to them, reinforces that belief. I feel great, doc. Not every patient, but some patients. I feel great, thank you, you saved my life. Give them, a, give them some gift or something like that. You know, They just reinforce that with that praise. And, and they get a little financial stimulus every time, a little reimbursement every time they do more and more and more. That combination, that's the methamphetamine of being a doctor. It's highly addictive. You feel good about it, you get a little financial stimulus, it, you're addicted to that substance. And then somebody comes along with Orbita, and you're a smart person who's addicted to doing something, your immediate answer is not, oh, I was wrong all these years, that will just fracture your ego. Instead, your answer is, there must be something wrong with the study. The authors were ill-motivated, they're terrible, they don't know anything, the patients are wrong, the controls are wrong, and they're smart, they can come up with plausible reasons why the study is not perfect, because no study is perfect. But they can't come up with alternate data that shows their intervention actually works. You know, it's easy to pick apart a negative study. It's hard to show better data that your intervention works, and that's what nobody wants to do. 
If you don't like courage, you should launch a sham control study to prove how it works. That's not the response. The response is denigrate Orbita and then just ignore it. That's the response. Finally, loss of trust in medicine. I think this is the greatest harm of reversal. We live in an age where there's a vocal anti-science faction and they're crazy and they have irrational beliefs and self-destructive beliefs and they're harming the rest of us with their bad decisions because of lowering herd immunity and things like that. But all that thing is bad about them, but they have something to hang their hat on the more we adopt practices based on low evidence and refute later. This gives them ammunition, even if it's misguided ammunition, but ammunition that all of Western medicine is wrong. That's not the conclusion, of course. The conclusion is science is the best path forward. What we do is very much likely to benefit, but we could do what we do better. We should do better, and they should stop you know, believing in five grams of turmeric a day and whatever. Where does this come from? Uh, this is, when I go to lecture, somebody says, this is my busy slide, and I cringe, and, but this is my busy slide, sorry. Uh, but I tried to show in one slide why this happens, and I think there's, it's really can be boiled down to one thing. We adopted something based on inadequate or biased studies. We were enthusiastic, that's good, human beings are enthusiastic, but we jumped the gun. We just adopted it, we didn't wait for the correct study. Um, you know, stenting renal artery stenosis, we do it in 50 people, UVA, it looks good. Oh, let's just do it, let's just do it. Let's just get Medicare to reimburse. And the moment you get Medicare to reimburse, it's done. You know, everyone's gonna do it, no one's gonna study it, and it's gonna be years before some brave investigator gets the courage, the funding, the ability to study it. That's the, that's the central fallacy of medicine, that the proponents believe in what they do, they don't wanna study what they do rigorously. Why do they believe something so strongly? Pathophysiology. I think laboratory people often can do a great disservice to us because they have the strongest faith in their pathophysiology. But pathophysiology is often a prerequisite to a successful drug, but by no means an assurance of a successful drug. If pathophysiology meant your drug will succeed, then drug companies wouldn't have one in the 10,000 candidate compounds come to market. They would have higher success rates. It's because pathophysiology does not guarantee success. Pathophysiology plus anecdotal evidence like vertebroplasty sometimes large-scale epidemiology evidence, but it's often retrospective, um, recall bias. Nutritional epidemiology is bankrupt on this topic, and I'm gonna show you data why. Historical controlled evidence, this is my field. We treated 60 patients with cancer with drug A, and they do a lot better than historical comparisons. Okay, what historical comparisons? The comparison from 1960, where we didn't give them anything? Or, in many cases, they, they say that, but they actually cannot identify a cohort to which they are comparing it. Data suggests that historical controlled trials are far more likely to overestimate benefit than RCTs. That goes back many, many years. Finally, randomized trials. Um, merely being randomized doesn't make you a good randomized trial. Randomized trials are, and frequently, hijacked by the industry. And if we have time, we'll talk about Entresto, which I think is the exemplar of hijacking an RCT. Why are they bad? Inappropriate, they should say patients. The patients in randomized trials are inappropriate. They're too young. They're not representative of the patients you see. There's inappropriate dosing of the control medications. The comparators, the weakest comparator on the market. You're not allowed to use concomitant medications you otherwise would use. Look at some of these asthma trials and you'll see there's so many bans on these, all these other kind of drugs that we use as the mainstay of asthma therapy. Those bans don't really make much sense. Finally, single center studies. Uh, if you do an intervention like tight glycemic control in the ICU at a single center, perhaps a charismatic investigator can influence the outcome. Same thing with early goal-directed therapy in the ICU. 
Now we have early goal-directed therapy, multicenter, contradicts it. We have nice sugar, tight glycemic control, multicenter, and it contradicted the single-center study from the Belgium. I think when it comes to um, these kind of QI project initiatives, you need multicenter because the real question you're asking is not whether or not one hospital can randomize to some quality initiative and improve outcomes. It's whether or not that's scalable, can be translated to other hospitals. And charismatic people at one institution can drive outcomes. Maybe that doesn't replicate elsewhere because you don't have those same people breathing down your neck. And I'll talk about some of these other ones. Last thing I'd say is meta-analysis. I often hear people say, um, well, this is based on a meta-analysis. I say, well, what's in that meta-analysis? It's like, oh, a bunch of studies with 30 people from 1940. Oh my gosh. I say, meta-analysis is like a juicer. It only tastes as good as what you put in. And you're putting a lot of rotten fruit into that juicer. Okay, I think this is the lesson of Orbita. If you have a mechanical or procedural intervention and the only endpoint you believe you improve is a subjective endpoint like dyspnea, pain, or angina, the only acceptable control arm is a sham intervention. You need the person to believe you did it, but you did not do the active step. Because we have seen over and over these interventions, the sham is what knocked out meniscectomy and debridement for OA and vertebroplasty and lumbar steroid injections and PCI for stable angina. You need the sham because the intervention can look better than medical management, but you don't know whether or not it's the actual intervention or the suggestion and belief that you had something done that should make you feel better. And Rita Redberg wrote this wonderful paper in the New England Journal of Medicine um, where she makes this case. I guess I'll show you two things. So one, I will talk about why is nutritional epidemiology bankrupt and you should like never read any of it. Uh, I think when you read the paper, especially the well column of the New York Times, it really does appear like this is how they write it. They spin this wheel and they say, coffee can cause, spin this wheel, depression in spin the wheel, twins. And they say, like, got the story for today. Coffee can cause depression in twins. And then the next week, it's daycare can cause hypothermia in two income households. Or, you know, they just spin the wheel. Okay. Um, but I would replace these with what I think they actually cover. Here's what they cover. Dark chocolate, tea, coffee, alcohol, berries. If you have a berry, you can get in the times. If you have a pitted fruit, you get out of here, right? You put, that, put the pitted fruit in the trash. Forget your research. You might as well throw that grant application away. But berries are in. Chocolate, tea, coffee, alcohol. Now you're talking New York Times material. Um, I read this recently. Vitamin E can increase all-cause mortality. And I went to my cupboard and I threw out a bunch of old gel cap bottles. But then I was back at Costco buying the biggest <laughs> bottle ever and that vitamin E mortality study was challenged. Okay, why do we get this, this flip-flop? A couple years ago, Chirag Patel and John Ioannidis actually kind of showed why this happens. And I will, once you see why it happens, I think you'll forever get this topic. So when you do this kind of research, what do you do? Um, you go to a uh, food frequency questionnaire like NHANES, where for many, many years we asked people what they ate. And there's some bias, obviously, here recall bias, blah, 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 but you collect this data over many years. And now I know years later, did they live or die? So I can start to ask the question whether or not did somebody who ate more tomatoes have less prostate cancer? Okay, did they live longer? If you eat more nuts or something, you know, all these kinds of questions I can ask. I have this data set. How do you ask that question? You construct a regression analysis where, for the sake of this argument, let's say we care about mortality only. So we want to predict mortality. It's the Y variable of our regression analysis. You know, it could, there's all sorts of different sophisticated regression ways you can do this, but this is the core of it. 
and you ask, what predicts the outcome? The first thing you put in the model is vitamin E exposure. That's what you care about. So does vitamin E exposure predict mortality? But that can't be your only model, because what if vitamin E is used more often in older people than younger people? It may look harmful when it is, in fact, beneficial. So you have to adjust for age, of course, and then sex and race. This is a plausible regression analysis that could lead to a paper. And in Portland, let's say I have Stata. I can download NHANES. It's easy to get. And I run this. I get an answer. My colleague in Toronto, he adds an income. Because in Toronto, they care about socioeconomics of health. And we don't care about it in this country. But they care about it in Canada. So they add an income. OK, fair enough. My other colleague, she's in North Carolina. And she sees a lot of smoking. So she adds that in her model. And she tests the same question, vitamin E, because it's an interesting question. And she doesn't tell me about it. She runs her on her software. And my friend at Harvard runs BMI, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, alcohol consumption, education. Because he's at Harvard, he knows, you know. He, he, wants to, he doesn't want a rejection. He's going to run it all. OK. The point here is that for some questions, there are many, many investigators with access to the data set and statistical software. They can run this analysis in like 30 seconds. They can run it very quickly. Maybe not that fast, but they can run it very quickly. And we can all ask the question. And we can all have a plausible reason why you should adjust for some of these and not others, or other variables and not this. We can all tell a story why you should adjust for these things. It's easy to construct a story. John Ioannidis and Chirag Patel said, let us not test vitamin E and mortality in one study. Let us simulate everybody in the world testing it many, many times, as is what is actually going on in the world. Let's simulate the research landscape. That's what they do. They run. 13 variables, every possible combination of 13, which is 2 to the power of 13 or 8,000 models, looking at single nutrient, single outcome relationships, just choosing different variables that are all plausible. And they're simulating in these huge galaxy clouds all of the possible studies that could be done from this data set. And I'll show you here. On one axis, I pl they plot the hazard ratio. On the other axis, they plot the negative log 10 p-value, which is a way of plotting significance. What they're showing you here is a heat map. Each of these maps is one exposure, and mortality is the outcome. So this is like vitamin D and mortality, vitamin E and mortality. And they're shooting about thousands and thousands, millions of studies across this whole paper. It's a heat map. There's a lot of heat in the middle, meaning lots of studies have this conclusion. What hazard ratio do you think lots of studies have for nutrients and mortality? One, no relationship. That's the heat of all the maps, is around one. That it's not really one serving of vitamin E here. That doesn't make much of a difference. But there are dots at this edge and this edge, this edge and this edge, suggesting that you can get statistically significant, perhaps beneficial and harmful relationships just by picking and choosing covariates to adjust for. And if you think about all the publication biases I've alluded to, no one is going to publish this. If I got this result on my computer, I'm not even going to write it up. Am I going to have my postdoc or my resident or my fellow spend hours to write up a null result? Where are we going to publish that? The Journal of Nobody Cares? I want to be in the New York Times Well column. I want that. And so I'm just going to run a different analysis. But if you happen to be the person who runs this analysis, you're going to feel like you found the truth and you're going to publish it. So even though every individual may be honest, the collective result of all of us looking at the question will be dishonesty. And it's more true for hot topics like chocolate and berries and all the stupid stuff they want to write about all the time. It's less true for topics that few people care about will ever study, right? Because you don't have the multiplicity. OK. 
So that's why nutritional epidemiology will always flip-flop, because the New York Times just covers one dot on the plot, and no one's covering this. And the truth is that probably most of what we eat or drink, one serving here or there, has no effect on all-cause mortality. And that's the reality, but you know, it's not comforting to think about it that way. Paradigm. You guys are probably under pressure to add this medication to your patients. Hate this medication. Hate it so much. I hate, I hate this trial. And I'll tell you why I hate this trial. I think this trial is emblematic of why the industry, how they've hijacked trials, and they're just kind of setting their own agenda and telling us nothing of value. When you look at how enalapril dulls against LCZ696, which is the combination of Valsartan and Sacbutril, which is the neprilysin inhibitor, this looks good, does it not? This is a, I don't know, this mortality or that, oh, it's mortality, it's a mortality curve. That is a nice benefit. Look at how many zeros are in that p-value. That's significant. I joke, but Milk Packer actually does use that argument. There's lots of, Z, there's lots of zeros in there. You don't need to do two trials, is what he says. And that's a misunderstanding of trials. Why do we combine a neprilysin inhibitor with an R and test it against an ACE? Many years ago, we combined an ACE, we tested an ACE inhibitor against a combo drug that hits both ACE and neprilysin. That's this drug. This drug failed, though, and did not come to market because of angioedema. So the thought that a single molecule that inhibits neprilysin and ACE has too much angioedema. So we need a way to inhibit neprilysin, which is thought to be involved in fluid management. And that's over. I don't even understand. Uh, I don't care, actually. It's irrelevant what it's thought to do. But um, you know, we want to inhibit neprilysin, and we want it with a drug that has less angioedema. And of course, an ARB makes perfect sense, because ARBs and ACEs are mostly interchangeable. We wrote this paper recently. Do the limitations of the design justify the slow real-world uptake? And that's what we argue. So here are the limitations of the design. First, Valsartan, 160 milligrams BID plus a novel drug is tested against enalapril, 10 milligrams BID. This is the maximum FDA-approved dose of Valsartan. This is the half-maximal FDA-approved dose of enalapril. Max dose ARB against half dose ACE. And let me ask you this. Have anyone, has anyone ever had a patient in their practice that actually was taking this dose of Valsartan? I've never, that's what I always get every time I give this lecture. Uh, this dose will make you faint. I mean, this is a stiff dose. I don't think you could get up that high. But that's what they did. The blood pressure was lower in the group taking the combo. Surprise, surprise. They also had more ARB on board. Is that because of this drug? Or is it because that this is pushed at a higher dose than the ACE? I don't know. Also, the other thing, BID enalapril, come on. Who's on enalapril? I never see anyone on an Alpert. Well, who wants to take a BID drug? We have, you want once a day dosing. And here's why the trial, I think, is like fatally flawed. We took 10,000 people with heart failure, and we did a double drug run-in period of unequal periods of time. We put everyone on enalapril for 14 days. 1,000 people fall off the study. Then we put everyone on LCZ-696, the combo, for 28 days. And halfway through it, we crank up the Valsartan dose. We double the dose halfway through. Another 1,000 people fall off the trial. So 14 days on this drug, 28 days on the, your drug, and then you're randomized. So what is the randomization? The randomization is keep taking what you are currently taking, that's the experimental arm, or switch back to a drug you haven't taken for a month that may be at a lower dose. That's the randomization. So this doesn't test the question of which is better. It tests whether it is better to stay on Entresto or switch to enalapril after exposure to both agents for unequal periods of time. That's what it's testing. And the longer you run in on your drug, you favor your drug, of course. 
because people who are idiosyncratically intolerant to your drug will fall off. Imagine there's a person who in week three of this stupid, of this combo drug doesn't like it. They will only fall off this arm. They wouldn't have had a chance to be pulled off the enalapril arm because it was only for two weeks. I don't know. The, every time I present this to students, they say, why didn't they just test it against Valsartan 160 in this arm? And that's what I say. You know, you have a novel drug. You don't know if this compound has a net benefit to people. You keep everything constant except the novel drug. That's basic logic. So I think that this should not have led to whatever that American College of Cardiology recommendation they gave it, good recommendation. It's one trial. It has a terrible design. Also, you know, 20% of people fall off before randomization. This is, I mean, this is crazy. The next thing is the approved dose, the pills that they actually come, they're not coming at the dose in the trial. What's a, I, I have not yet figured out that discrepancy. Um, we're not pushing people to this high dose in real life. We have retrospective data that says if you crank up the ACE or ARB, you get a little bit of benefit. That's by some of the same authors as this study. So I say, I wouldn't have given this drug approval. There used to be a rule, two trials for drug approval in cardiovascular disease. They violated that rule here. And I certainly wouldn't use it over these other drugs until they do a confirmatory trial with a better design. But they have marketing. I think the solutions here are that new costly technologies being introduced to healthcare systems are ripe for definitive testing. Um, we should be reluctant to adopt practices based on inadequate data, especially when these practices make manufacturers tens of billions of dollars. Manufacturers of these products cannot say, we can't afford to do the definitive testing because we know they're profiting so, so greatly. They could easily afford to do the definitive testing. We once lived in a system where you could count on the regulator to be the barrier for these products to come on the market. You can no longer count on the regulator. So I think what you have to do in your own practice is not just you, but all doctors, we have to actually engage with the data for what we do much more than we ever did. It makes our jobs harder, but we can't trust the FDA seal of approval. We can't trust the manufacturer. Um, I personally think this is in a different talk I give, but I, I always say that like, you know, I think that we should just like stop interact, stop meeting with drug reps and those kinds of things because even if what they're telling you is truthful, they're directing your thought towards, you know, what they want you to think about. I bet many people, or some people may have gone to drug talks about this drug, and I bet no one's ever said any of the things that I say about it, you know, because they're not, they're not having dinners around the country talking about double drug run-in period and making a point of that. So I think it's true, but it can be misleading. Um, I think at some point we will realize as a society that we spend a trillion dollars a year on healthcare at a federal level, and we spend 30 billion on all of science and medical funding, of which a fraction is randomized trials. When you spend a trillion dollars on something, and so much of what you do, you just genuinely do not know if it works the way you're deploying it, a rational society would say, we're gonna take 5% or 10% of this money and just start testing things. Because if we find one stenting renal artery disease that doesn't work and we de-adopt that, we can make all that money back. It's a more prudent use of resources. So someday I think we will hopefully have a federal policy initiative uh, to create a non-conflicted agency whose job is to go through Medicare claims, figure out what people are doing a lot, and then subject that to rigorous appraisal. Ideally with a randomized trial that's pragmatic, done building into EHRs, so that it's like one click, you randomize, somebody does all the work on the back end, the doctor doesn't have to do anything, and the patients look like real world patients. We start to answer some questions. And I think that, you know, there's a bunch of sophisticated ways like value of information analysis, you can kind of prioritize the studies. 
this is an obvious solution that's been talked about for years, and someday there will be political will to do it. Because you won't be able to spend 30% of GDP on healthcare, or 40%, or 50%. We're at 20% now. There's gotta be some GDP on healthcare and, and have poor outcomes, let's be honest. You're spending a tremendous GDP on healthcare, you have terrible outcomes, somebody's gonna, and you have all these things that are bioplausible, have no credible data, somebody's gonna say, we gotta sort this mess out, and this is the solution. We will have to move the design and conduct of clinical trials to third-party agencies. Right now, we have a system where Novartis runs the Entresto trial, they go to the FDA with $2.6 million user fee to process the application, and the trial results. That's a foolish way to do it. They should go to the FDA with $46 million and the pill in a bottle and the preclinical data and tell the FDA, here's the money to run the trial. You get the CRO, you design the trial with non-conflicted experts, you run the trial, and the moment the DSMB halts, you approve the drug because you've designed the trial, you're running the trial. You don't even need to review the data when it's run. The DSMB says benefit, boom, trial is over, drug approved. So maybe it'll even save time. It is irrational to allow an entity that even, no matter how noble, the difference between a positive paradigm trial and a negative paradigm trial is $20 billion. And you put that $20 billion for zero, for nothing, you get nothing if you fail. $20 billion if you win, you design this trial and conduct it. Of course you're gonna do as much as you can, the worst comparator, the worst dosing, double drug run-in. I would do the same thing too. If you hired me to design the trial, I would come up with all sorts of clever ways to favor the product, but that distorts the truth. Um, Similarly, I always say, if we had a painting contest and I was the judge of the painting contest and the prize was $10 billion and you all submitted paintings and so did I, I will win my painting contest. And I'm a lousy painter. I'm, I'm very lousy, but I will win. I, I make George W. Bush look like a good painter. So, but I'll, I'll win this contest though. For $10 billion, I can bend the rules. Uh, this is the taste trial in the Netherlands. People say RCTs are expensive. Um, this is a... Um, Randomized trial of aspiration of the thrombus for STEMI. The blue line shows everyone with STEMI in the Netherlands, and the red line shows everyone who was randomized. This is insane. 60% of people in a country with a condition are getting randomized because they built it into the EHR, and the average provider didn't have to do anything, just one click. And they did this for $50 per person who underwent randomization, not $30,000 per person, which is the cost in this country. Um, I'm just fascinated how like Silicon Valley wants to invent everything to make healthcare better. The two things that would be the most helpful would be an EHR that's not garbage and two, randomized trials that are easy to do and cheap. Why don't they just invent those two things and they can do the other stuff later? Okay, I'm gonna skip this because of time. But there's an analogy about medicine like you don't do randomized trials for parachutes and we published a paper that we really debunked that uh, called Most Medical Practices Are Not Parachutes, the Canadian Medical Journal. It's by Michael Hayes who was a graduate of this program. Um, it's an interesting paper. Okay, so my final thought is that history has taught us the arc of medicine bends towards higher upfront standards of evidence and I think it'll continue to bend in the future. Um, and if you like this talk, I say check out the book or we have this podcast that you should check out. So thanks for having me. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. 
If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.